So let's go ahead and um, first, how many of you have had training in Virginia human rights related to Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Services? So a little bit more than half of the class. Have other of you had human rights training from some other state? So maybe so, okay. So when I'm referencing the human rights today, I am talking about the human rights set forth by the Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Services, which are very specific regulations about the people that we serve. And sometimes if we leave this context and we go out elsewhere and we talk about human rights, people may think of Amnesty International or in Fairfax County, fair housing or whatnot. And those are other human rights, but I am specifically addressing these human rights regulations today. Um, and I forgot to introduce that I am Heidi Gardner um, for the training purposes. As um, yesterday, if you have a question or a comment, feel free to stop me and because we're taping, I will try to repeat that question before I answer it. So I wanted to go through this pretest and as a way for you to evaluate what, what things you're going to know. At the end, there will be a post-test, and we're required to administer that, and you need to pass 80%. Um, Good news is I've never had anyone who hasn't passed. So if you uh, pay attention, it's not meant to trick you. I will tell you that some of these, we intentionally wrote these a little trickier to point out certain things, but the post-test is not intended to trick you. So, um, so okay, let's go through these um, questions. One, some of the human rights regulations core concepts are dignity, participation in decision making, and confidentiality. True or false? True, that is correct. Number two, individuals do not retain their legal, civil, and human rights when they receive services from MHSADS false that probably not a lot of people would want to seek our services. Number three, services provided should be consistent with sound therapeutic practice. True, and we'll talk more about what that means. Individuals receiving services do not need to be notified of the human rights regulations. False. Five, MHSADS must file a signed copy of the human rights notice in each client's chart. True. Six, individuals receiving services can pursue other legal remedies. True. Participation in religious services or practices is never limited. False. And the word never is the word there. We'll talk more about when uh, participation can be limited. Eight, providers must ensure that individuals are not abused, neglected, or exploited. True. Use of the telephone may be limited to certain times and places. True. 10, individuals receiving services do not have the right to participate in decisions regarding their services. False. 11, in emergencies to prevent injury, death, or substantial property destruction, providers may disclose information without an individual's consent. True. Providers must allow an individual to request access to his or her chart. True. 13, 
individuals are not entitled the freedoms of everyday life that are consistent with his or her need for services. False. 14. Providers must not limit or restrict an individual's freedom more than is needed to achieve a therapeutic benefit. True. 15. Each individual is entitled to be completely free from any use of seclusion, restraint, and or timeout. False. And once it's any, and we'll talk more about um, what that means. 16, an individual is not allowed to participate in human research. False. 17, written informed consent must be obtained from an individual before participating in research. True. 18, individuals have a right to complain that their rights have been violated and have a timely and fair review of the complaint. True. The director of an organization or his designee can resolve an informal complaint. That's true. An employee must not stop an individual from filing a complaint or providing assistance to file a complaint. True. So. Before I jump into the PowerPoint presentation, which I provided with each of you, and same as yesterday, if you want to follow along, take notes, feel free. If not, um, don't feel that you have to. wanted to just give you my personal story in how I um, actually ended up in this field um, more than several years ago. Um, I was in college and was taking a developmental psychology course and we had to volunteer somewhere and we could volunteer at the nursing home or the daycare or the state school and the state school was basically an institution for people with um, developmental disabilities and it was um, and I chose to to do that as my volunteer experience and was assigned to a gentleman we'll call um, John and the state school was up on the hill. So already it had this you know, look of it was up on the hill and we were in the valley and um, um, cold and, and distant. But in any case, so I went there my first day not knowing what to accept, expect, but I was told that the gentleman I was working with would be in programming. So I, was like, I don't know what that is, but that sounds, you know, I'll learn something and I got there and I walked in and it was a dim room and there were two rooms Staff were basically in one room and there was a table and then there was like a, like a living room where there would be um, sofas and chairs and people were there and people were milling about, but nobody was doing anything. I introduced myself, they said come in, they introduced me to um, John and took a seat and then I, I waited and I waited and I waited. When is programming going to begin? Finally naively said, when is programming beginning? And what was the answer? You're in it. And nobody was doing anything. And I think I was there two or three hours that first day. And um, at one point, um, one of the staff members stood up and 
um, pointed to different clients and said, you, 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 come on, we're going to go take a, a walk outside. That group of people left. Um, the gentleman I was working with was not chosen. A couple other people weren't. And they went out, took a walk, and they came back. And we continued to do absolutely nothing but sit there. And then a little while later, they said, okay, now we're going back to, I think they called it the unit or the ward. And we literally, it was you know what you think of, um, or what I always thought of as an institution, and they opened a door that was off the room with the living room, and we were now in underground tunnels. That is how we went to the unit. But it was nice enough day that we people were able to walk outside, if you remember. So we were in these underground tunnels. It was very traumatic. In fact, like I said, this happened more than two decades ago for me, and. Um, finally got up there in this living space and now there were many other clients and people were just milling around. I remember I sat down, a client sat on top of me and I was um, just really surprised. It was not at all what I had expected and not in a good way was I surprised. And I left that day and said, I'm coming back. I'm, I'm going to come back and I'm going to bring things for John and I to do. I have no idea what to do. I don't know what programming should be, but I know it can't I'm not going to sit here for three hours once or twice a week for a semester and do nothing. And um, on a humorous side, um, being naive that I was, the next week I decided that myself and John would indeed go outside for a walk, um, at which point we went outside. He then took off running. I was chasing him, and he was stripping off all his clothing as we were running. And um, anyway. Learned a lot, but that's how I actually got in the field and then got a job at a group home and blah, blah, blah. So uh, the topic that is very near and dear um, to me. Luckily, um, I think institute services for people have changed much for the better. Um, but lest you think that I am uh, anti-institutions, I actually, and we'll probably talk about this a little later in my presentation when I was in Florida, um, had the unfortunate experience of having to visit clients in a group home that made that institution look like a really good place to be. And I'll probably get to that in a little bit. So anyway, here we go. Our human rights regulations, who is subject to these? Providers um, that are licensed by the Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Services. We fit, um, we're a community services board. Here is the human rights policy in a nutshell. And I'm going to um, ask you to take one and pass this along. This, what's um, coming around is the, the law, the Code of Virginia, that says here are the rights of the people that we serve. And from there, these regulations are written. And I want each of you to take a look at the code, and there's 11 items that are articulated there, the rights, that people that, the rights of the people that we serve. And I have two questions for you. What right could you most easily give up, and what is the right that you would hold on to last, or say, no, I can't give this up, or this is the last thing to do? And I'll just give you a, a couple minutes to look at that.
I was trying to not step away from the microphone, but um, that held me up, sorry. I think probably most people have had a chance at least to glance at this. So what's the one right, and there's no right or wrong answers here, obviously it's a personal um, opinion, but what is the um, item of these 11 that you could most easily give up? Which one? The, probably the mail, yep, be allowed to send and receive sealed letter mail. Suppose we said um, be allowed to use your your phone or your iPhone was restricted, would you change it? Because obviously these haven't been updated since, the, then that might change might change your answer, right? If we took away your, your iPhone, that might change it. But, but everybody, that's usually the one that everybody says is, um, you know, and it used to be take away your email and now it's take away your, your iPhone. So anybody have a different answer? So the access to medical and clinical, uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, like I said, my doctor is a Okay, that makes sense. What about, um, what is the, the one that you would hold on to or say, this is the one I've got that's most important to me? So not the subject of an experimental or an investigation research without um, basically uh, informed consent? That makes sense? Three, be treated with dignity as a human being and be free from abuse or neglect. Any other ones? So legal rights, um, that makes sense. And those are usually the answers that most people um, give. And that makes sense in, in our context. Um, I had the opportunity to be in prison over the weekend um, at Alcatraz. Luckily, it was not still an operating prison in case any of you were going to run out of here. But, um, you know, and I was thinking there, they talked about the, the prisoners' rights and they were very limited. And as I was reading this today, thinking, oh, you know, for them, the right to not be, you know, unfairly treated and locked up, restrained, et cetera, was probably more than their legal rights at that point. Do you know? And so the context. But I think that if I could sum up the human rights regulation in just one thing, it's about human dignity. And your point of, you know, hey, if all these other rights are being upheld, then maybe the other things are going to fall into place if we're treating people with dignity, et cetera. So I think that most of the 
the regulations all make sense. I don't think there's any surprises in terms of the rights. Some of the articulations in terms of what those rights mean or the requirements may be unique to, to us or, or to you that haven't had the training before, but I don't think there's any surprises what rights people have or don't have. Okay, so civil rights, we're all familiar, and obviously people don't give up their legal rights when they come into services. Um, how do people learn of their human rights, do you think? Sure, that they may learn um, when, if their rights are violated, someone could say, hey, I believe your human rights are violated. Exactly. Then on the, hopefully, the proactive side, that we have to let people know what their rights are, right, so that they know, hey, if there's a, a violation, so that when they enter services, they receive, and you have a copy there of what the clients receive, and we need to go over that with them. This isn't one of these, you know, here's a million forms, sign, 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 don't bother reading, it's okay, sign. We actually have an obligation to go over that with the client to explain what, what these mean. And then annually, the client has to, we have to review the human rights, and they need to sign again. And if you remember yesterday with the privacy rule, that was just one time when they entered services. This is every year, the human rights. Um, we also have a, a requirement that every year our staff have to have an, uh, a refresher course that you'll do online that um, you have to pass. There's some kind of, it's a competency-based um, test. We also have to display our human rights posters. So if you go into, next time you're in the Shenandoah building or the, the group homes, when you walk in, you should be able to clearly see our poster. Um, and on there, it has who to contact for a human rights complaint, including um, an internal number to call, as well as Mark Seymour, who's our human rights advocate. And um, there are times where people get a hold of our number that aren't clients of ours or aren't in, involved with our services, but they're desperate for someone to help them. They believe their human rights have been violated, and I've gotten calls as far away as Missouri because people are you know, looking for, for ways, but obviously these human rights are about the people that we are serving. Not surprisingly, we had to alter our human rights for the clients that we serve in the ABC, and I know a couple of you, at least one or two, were gonna be serving people in the ABC, because obviously the rights of, oh, you have your own um, phone, we're gonna let you write a letter, you're gonna have your own this and that, they're not gonna have those same rights because our services are not the residential services in the jail. Instead, the services that we're providing are therapy or, or group therapy to the individuals, and so their rights as articulated in the human rights are just during the time that we're providing services. Most people, it's, um, we didn't have to do a different human, human rights notice, but that it's about the time that we um, are serving people. 
Okay, so what I'm gonna do now is go into each of the rights. So the first one, dignity. Um, these make sense, free from abuse, neglect, exploitation, to be called by preferred or legal name, to consult with um, family and lawyers, doctors, and providers in private so that um, if a client, if a staff member's taking a client to a medical appointment and the client, one, they may ask a staff, hey, would you come? And the staff say, can I go in to help record? But the client has a right to say no. And we need to ask the client, hey, can we go there? And not just assume that because we're serving somebody, that means um, we have a right to, to, um, to attend all meetings um, with, with the individual. Another um, articulation is we have an obligation to provide information about other public benefits to the people that we serve. Not just about the programs that we run, but other services. Why is that? Because we may be the only link that somebody has to knowing about other services. So that we have an obligation to um, do that and then also receive information about our services as well as policies, um, et cetera. And with dignity, before I move on, is dignity subjective? Is that a concept that's subjective, do you think? I think, yeah, it could be. I think that what is important to, to one person may not be as important to other and that when we're looking at this it's from the perspective of the client. So um, the best, um, so not of staff people, and I'll give you an example. Um, had a client that called us a couple years ago and said I have a complaint when I'm riding with this staff person, we're going down the highway and he's doing punch buggy to me and it hurts. Um, I said, well, okay. So we talked to the staff person and he said, you know, I want to talk to you about so and so. Oh, he loves it. We have great fun on and on. But clearly there was one, I don't advise playing punch buggy with the people that we serve, even if the client advises it. But the point being that this staff person was oblivious that this client did not want to partake in this and did not think not only was it neutral, was absolutely believing that, and rightly so. Right? So, any case, that um, it's about the perspective, the client's perspective. These regulations are written for the protection of the people we serve. Why did Virginia believe it was necessary to write these regulations? Because some of these are obvious. We've said the dignity, the, the right to have, I mean, some of these are just really obvious. So why did they take the time and effort to write the law and then these regs, do you think? Hold, I think that's probably right to have a accountability. So a way that people can't, people that can't stick up for their own rights, I think that's right. Anything else you can think of? 
I think that's right, that there's also historical abuse that has happened for the people that we serve. My example of the institution, that I think we could name many of these human rights violations were, that were being violated within the first half an hour that I was in there. Um, exactly right. So these are written for the protection of the people that we serve. Now, that seems very clear, that makes sense. But at times, um, it may be an annoyance um, to staff because these aren't a due process of if a client has a complaint, then there's gonna be a judge and a jury between the client and the staff person playing punch buggy. It was all about the perspective of the client, right? And that we have an obligation that if someone says their human rights are being violated or they have a complaint, that we need to look into that even if we may say, well, that wouldn't bother me. I enjoy playing, getting punched in the arm when I'm riding on the highway or whatnot, right? So keeping that in mind as we're, we're going forth here. Now, that does, of course, lead to the possibility that some clients could say, you know, make, try to get staff by saying, oh, my rights are violated, they did this, they did that. Um, that is a risk, but overall the reasons that you articulated I think are exactly right. The reason that we have these are because of the reasons that you said, and I think you'll notice that there are particular regulations about residential settings. Why is that? Because that's a place I think that often abuse, neglect can happen and be unseen or unknown, and so making sure that uh, people's rights um, are, are addressed in that way. Any questions about dignity? Okay. So services, the right to seek service according to law and sound therapeutic practice. What does sound therapeutic practice mean? I'm not going to feed that back nearly as well as you said it, but basically that you use proven methods or empirical data to serve people, that we're not looking at the internet late at night searching and saying, oh, look, I found this new method, I'm just going to start using that with the client, that, that there's sound therapeutic um, practice. And why is there a requirement that services have to be properly documented? Probably a couple reasons, but what do you think? For investigations, right, and documentation of services that we provided, which we're going to need probably to seek payment for the services. Um, and it's about sound services so that if I'm providing a service and you're the next staff person on duty, you can read my notes to know what happened, right, um, for that person also. The next right, participation in decision making and consent, including the consent to the right to consent or not consent in services, right? That we can't, um, 
forced people to receive services. Now, that doesn't mean that people haven't been court-ordered, let's say, into our drug and alcohol program. And indeed, it may be that they've been court-ordered into that program. And in that case, do you think we can say to them, you have to be here, and if you're not here, I'm going to come and get you and drag you into the services? No, no. What that would mean that if they don't participate, they would likely be violating a court order and we'll have to deal with the judge and the judicial system for that. But that people have a right to, to consent and meaningfully participate in decisions. Let me um, give you a, a, a story about that when we received a call um, some time ago um, from a lady who said, I um, want to be able to eat the, um, I always lose the term here, the, the hearty dinners, the frozen dinners, what are the hearty man? Hungry man, hungry man dinners, but my primary counselor wants me to get lean cuisine and really, you know, wants me and really won't let me get these the hungry man, I can't remember that, the hungry man dinners. And this is actually part of decision making. This is part of dignity. This story can, we can fit in a lot of different areas here. And so talk to, to different staff person and including the staff person involved. And um, it wasn't that this person was, if the client was putting it in the cart, that the staff person was grabbing it out and you know, replacing it with lean cuisine, but this person said, yeah, I'm really encouraging them to not, to, to eat the lean cuisine, not the hungry man, because this person has a lot of medical issues and they need to be on a, this diet for this reason, blah, blah, blah. And um, so we're trying to encourage this person to eat. So that in of itself can get into a dilemma, right? That you have a person that um, wants to meaningfully participate in such things as deciding what you're going to buy at the grocery store. And probably none of us um, eat healthy and make healthy food choices every single minute of our lives. On the other hand, for people that we serve, especially in residential facilities, we have our licensing regs that say we have to provide good care, medical services to people. So sometimes there can actually be a a bit of a, a gray area there of what is our role in helping people. Hopefully what we do is that when we're talking to people and what do you want to do, we're asking them questions so that if somebody says, hey, I really want to be able to do this, well, we're not just saying, no, you can't do that. You know, that we're trying to um, educate them or find a, hey, how can we help them do that? Um, another, um, twist of this um, situation was that you had the primary counselor who really felt like they needed to be the, the help this person make the choices and really steer them that way and not let them get these other ones. But then you had another staff person who would come on and they felt that this other employee's um, conduct wasn't right. This, this person should be able to make choices. So that person was taking them out to the store and allowing them to get whatever they wanted and bringing them sugar and other things. And so you had this, not only did you have the person's 
um, you know, hey, they're um, wanting different choices, but you actually had a team that doesn't sound like that sound therapeutic practice, does it? If you've got a team that they're not in agreement how they're going to serve somebody, you've got one person on one end and one on the other, and that doesn't mean it's a good place in the middle where you end up on balance. Um, okay, we'll talk more about authorized representatives, but people have a right to have an authorized representative, not as a punishment, but this is a right. They have a right to have an authorized representative to help them make decisions, and we'll get to that uh, later on. Informed consent for any treatment or service that poses a greater risk than ordinarily encountered in daily life, and we'll talk about um, this. So what's consent? Voluntary agreement. So informed consent means, once again, you're not just giving somebody a stack of forms and saying, here, you know, sign, like when you go to buy your car and you've got the forms and you know, you're just waiting to get out of there and you've got these stack of forms that we're going over with people what are the, the, the risks of this choice, et cetera. And psychotropic medications, obviously, there's other um, medical um, requirements, et cetera, that hate to explain to people this is the medication, these are the side effects. Um, and so not only for psychotropic medications, but other treatment or services that pose a risk of harm greater than ordinarily encountered in everyday life that we would, um, the informed consent um, is required. Now, people are um, part of making their treatment plan, that our role is to work with people in developing their plan and that clients are participating in that, um, in that process and are gonna sign that, et cetera. Obviously, for it to be informed consent, it has to be a free choice, not, hey, sign this or else we're not going to serve you or you're going to get kicked out. Um, confidentiality. I spoke yesterday that the regulations have a piece on us keeping all client information confidential. We also have very similar rights to what we saw on HIPAA yesterday, the right to request access and amendment to the individual's client record. Freedoms of everyday life. I'm going to let you um, read that definition and then I have a question for you. Okay, so just throw out what are for you freedoms of everyday life? Or for you or for, for anybody, what could be a freedom of everyday life? Eating, and maybe eating at a particular restaurant or type of food, or not eating, choosing to not eat a particular type of food. Sure, spending time with family and friends. Other? So, so having fun, going to different places, movies, amusement park. Exactly, practicing or not practicing a religion. 
So just every day being able to use the restroom, being able to choose what you, what you wear. Um, exactly, and I think that probably a lot of us take freedoms of everyday living for, for granted, you know, things that, um, that we do. And I, I use the analogy that isn't a perfect analogy, but um, similar to how we take electricity for granted. And all of a sudden, when your electricity goes out because of a summer storm, five minutes, oh, that's a pain, you have to reset everything or whatever, but an hour or two hours and all of a sudden, your landline might not work if it's a cordless, you can't watch the news, you may be losing your power for your iPhone, you know, and you, then you really appreciate when you have electricity. So I think for most of us, we probably very much appreciate or don't necessarily recognize the freedom of everyday life that we have and that we have different options because you might have one um, individual that says, I love amusement parks. That's like the, the best thing ever. And you may have somebody else that says, that would be the worst way. If I had to spend a day in an amusement park, that would be the worst thing ever. So that really freedoms of everyday life and choices are personal to us and to the people that we serve also. Um, now, there's a caveat here. We've got the first part, people are free to join. But then we've got that caveat um, that are consistent with the need for services and protection and protections of others and that don't interfere with the rights of others. And I like to think of this as um, the people that we serve. Everybody's got a balloon around them and that's your rights. And as long as one individual's rights don't infringe on somebody else's balloon rights, then you can have those rights. But if you have once my bubble of rights infringes on someone else's rights, then we've got an issue that we need to address. Um, a great ex uh, example of this is had a gentleman at a group home that at times um, had taken to throwing objects in the kitchen and um, items like blenders and things that could really hurt you if you got hit by a, a blender or other kitchen items. But what was happening is that as the gentleman would have these um, um, outbursts, that staff would remove everybody else. And although that was keeping them safe, that was really, they're sitting there, somebody's sitting there, you're having a nice breakfast and all of a sudden you've gotta leave um, your toast or your, your cereal or whatever because somebody else is, is what, how they're acting and yes, we don't wanna um, restrain people unnecessarily, et cetera, but that was an infringement on the people's rights or if we say we're gonna implement a behavior plan for one individual that there's no access to the telephone because they're um, calling people, calling 911, what about the other people that also live in that group home, right? And um, <clears throat> this is also particular, I think, to the setting. That if you live out on a 25-acre farm and you like to stay up till 3 a.m. and play music, likely not to disturb anybody, right? I mean, you can do that. 
if you live in an apartment here in Leesburg and you're playing your music loud at 3 a.m., you're likely going to be infringing on someone else's rights, and you're probably going to hear about that infringement from that person or potentially the police. So we've got to keep all of those pieces um, in our minds. Another um, example that I give is, let's say you have a person that says, I'm a Starbucks fan. So let's say this person um, says, I want to be able to cross the street from the group home and go to the Starbucks over here on that corner. And um, I want to be able to do that without staff's assistance. I want to be able to cross the street. I want to go get my coffee, enjoy my coffee, and come home and not have staff with me. Well, that, that seems like a reasonable uh, request. But let me tell you that let's say this person um, has a history of just not looking before they cross the road. So um, we could do, there's two extremes that I offer you. One is we could say you absolutely cannot do that. You cannot cross that road. You can't get to Starbucks. It's dangerous. You can't do it. Get that, that side. Or we could say, hey, it's your right to go to Starbucks. I'm going to sit here. Good luck. If you get across safely, I'll be here when you get back. Right? And obviously, neither of those are the approach we're going to take. What are we probably going to do? Work with the person. One, to find out what is it that you really want to do. Is it you don't want staff tagging along or that you want to be able to meet people at Starbucks? Or it's what is it? And then helping the person in reaching that, that maybe it's at first learning to be able to, you've got to look both ways and staff may, you know, trail you at times, whatever it is, but working with the individual as opposed to just saying, oh, well, we have no, do what you want or no, you can't do that. So here are some uh, particular um, articulations of freedoms of everyday life in the regulation. I think none of those um, surprise me in terms of the, the freedoms that people will have. I will um, tell you that the regulations say people have a right to have private storage space. That makes sense. It does not say that people have a right to have their own bedrooms, but that they have their own storage place. But we, in our department, everybody has their own bedroom in the facilities, but that's not an articulation in the regs. Instead said, hey, you've got to have your own private storage space, and by virtue of having your own bedroom, you have your own private storage space um, in our agency. So um, restrictions that basically people are entitled to all freedoms of everyday life, um, and we're not going to limit those more than is needed. And that makes sense, right? That if, um, if there's um, a need to put a restriction, we're going to, one, hopefully involve the person in that and limit that as um, little as we 
as we can. And certain things we actually have to get approved by the um, state human rights advocate and also the local human rights committee, another oversight body to before we can put a restriction in place. Oops, sorry. So, um, what is the word in this definition that is different than on the pretest that you took? There's a word that's added. Unnecessary, right. That it's not free from any, but any unnecessary. Um, here are examples of um, restraints, uh, definitions, um, physical um, restraints. Obviously, we're only going to use a physical restraint if you're trained in that and only as a last resort. And if it's going to be um, contemplated that we're going to implement that, then there's going to need a behavior support plan for a client. In an emergency, staff can implement that if they're trained. But if there's any, um, if staff leave a client needs to have, that may need to have some kind of physical restraint, we're going to need a behavior support plan before we implement that. Um, and that we're obviously, this is a last, re, a last resort. We have to um, notify the Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Services every year of how many restraints we use. And our agency usually has between zero and two for the entire agency for the entire year. So it's not something that is widely used. Unlike um, there are some um, children treatment programs, lockdown units, et cetera, that obviously have a much higher number. So um, it is only in an, in an, it's not a standard method of treatment, obviously. Sure. Good question. So the question is, how often would something like a bed rails and a helmet need to be reviewed? Um, if it's a restriction that needs to be approved by the local human rights committee, that's going to be every quarter. They're going, we're going to give an update and then an annual kind of um, we have an annual plan or a modification, but it's going to be reviewed quarterly. Now there may be situations for which there's a medical reason that somebody has, um, you know, uses a certain um, thing that's going to be a doctor order, and certainly we're going to have a doctor involved, um, and that if there's a use, let's say, of a bed rail because somebody may be a fall risk, we're obviously not going to use that to keep somebody in bed as a, a punishment or for staff convenience or something like that. Does that um, make sense? Um, so I think I already said this, but if there's going to be a use of restraints that's a, an allowed um, method, then it has to go through a, a review before we can implement that. Um, and the local human rights committee has to, and the review process mostly is not from the local human rights committee and meet quarterly, but instead um, a team, an internal team has to review that. We also have, um, within our agency, a behavior management committee. So 
all support plans go through that committee. Um, and they review those and uh, re we review those for do they meet the human rights regulations before they're implemented. So we do not allow in our facility seclusion. So the involuntary placement of individual we do, in limited situations, allow the use of timeout. What is the difference between timeout and seclusion? So a time at, okay, so seclusion, and, and that's how, um, the seclusion being a, a place you can't get out of, right? That you're prevented from, from leaving. And then um, time out, I think the one um, difference in these regulations than where you were is the involuntary removal of a person. So unlike a, a, a you know, we use, um, um, hey, I'm going to take a time out or go take a time out, but we're not, there's not the involuntary removal of a person. Um, that that's the regulations, this is the regulatory definition. And it seems, as we sit here, it seems real obvious that there's a difference between these. But let me pose this scenario. Um, you have a client who's behaving um, a behavioral um, incident that's escalating and they or other people are at risk and um, if you escort them to their bedroom and lock them in their bedroom, seclusion or timeout? Seclusion, clearly. Okay, so let's do a different scenario. Instead of being escorted to the bedroom, they are escorted to the dining room and there's um, two exits out of the dining room. Timeout or seclusion? Timeout, that seems timeout. So let me give you, let's do a different one. Same dining room, but now there's only one entrance and it's a small doorway and staff stand at the doorway. It's not so clear. It's not so clear anymore, is it? Like where, where do you, because it's, it's real easy to say, okay, here it is on the extremes, but where is it in practice? And obviously we are not a facility that's going to use timeout very often we're not going to use seclusion, but I point that out to say it's probably not a clear line as we might like to think in reality. So if we um, are going to use timeout, we're going to have a behavior support plan that's going to be really specific so that the people that are implementing that plan know what is, what is expected and that people are consistent in um, of how it's going to the behavior support plan is going to be implemented. Pardon? In an emergency. Okay, so let's talk about that. If there's an emergency, what's one thing people can always do? Staff could do in an emergency. 
exactly that you could call somebody else if somebody's out of the house, you can call your super, and depending on the emergency, you can always call if there's an, an emergency 911. I mean, obviously there's gonna be different plans depending on where, where you're, you're working. Um, so if we go back to, in an emergency, you could use timeout or restraint, but only if you were trained and if there were no other options. And obviously it's not gonna be a first um, thing. When I worked at a, um, after my experience at the institution, worked at a group home, and this was up in Pennsylvania, and there we were not allowed to physically put our hands on um, clients whatsoever. And it was a, a sad situation of a young man whose family did not believe in medication. So he would go home for the weekend, and they would say, we're not giving any medications. He would come back on Sunday night, and you didn't want to be the person working Sunday night because he literally was throwing over furniture. And what did you have to do? Well, what we had to do is keep everybody else safe, try to minimize what was going, and being on the phone to our supervisor who would have to call in, you know, and all of this. Um, so certainly we want to try to set up situations to, to minimize what we're going to do. Did I answer your question? Okay, I went on a tangent, and I did. Um, and I forgot the question, so thank you. Um, okay, people have the, the right to work or to choose to not work. Now, we may have program rules that say, if we're serving you, you need to have something to do. You, you know, that we are not a, a facility that's going to be um, staffed 24 hours, and you need to be actively engaged in somebody with, with something. Do you think that's a violation of this standard? No, why not? I agree with you, but why not? Exactly, right, and she said it's part of their rehabilitation and, and goes to participate. I agree with you. And the other reason is those are program rules that when people come into, the, into our program, we say, here's the service that we provide, here are the rules of the program. Do people have to choose to come into our services? No, and the more um, rules that we have that are not um, situation or client specific that we have in place before people come into program and that we make sure we convey those, I think the better we are um, set up so that it's, this is what our program's about, this is what's expected. Um, so if we have somebody we're serving, can we tell them, hey, you have to work at this restaurant or you have to do this? Probably not, right? That we can say, hey, you have to be engaged in some activity, whether that's a um, friendship house, which is our psychosocial um, treatment facility, whether you're involved with ECHO, you volunteer. We, any of those would fit the bill if we're saying, hey, you have to be involved in something here. Now, some people have on their treatment plan particular goals that they are saying, I want to work for this, and so we're gonna help them work in that, but we're not gonna travel. You have to work here. And this, the regs are very clear. We are allowed to ask people that are living in residential settings to participate in daily chores 
around there, that's not the same as saying, oh, well, um, people that we're serving are now gonna have to clean staff's cars or something like that, but to be involved in you know, cleaning the dishes, um, et cetera. Research, people have a right to choose or not to choose to participate in research. And that each individual has a right to complain that we violate, that somebody's violated their human rights and to have a fair hearing that, um, that's um, investigated. Um, and not to be denied services that obviously we can't say to somebody, well, file the complaint if you want to, but there's gonna be tech to play it if you do that. No, we, we can't do that. Um, and then we'll take a break here in just a couple of minutes. But there's a couple of different um, processes that if a person or an authorized representative says that they have a human rights complaint, there's two tracks. There's informal and a formal. And informal doesn't mean less serious and formal more serious. It just is about the path that the client wants to choose. And the informal is resolution-based, that they want an immediate resolution, they don't want a full investigation, it's something um, they want to be resolved. And if they um, go that route, there are five business days for which we, there's a resolution. Who do you think decides if there's a resolution? I'm sorry. The client, exactly. That makes sense. The, 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 so the, if we say, oh, we've, we've offered a resolution, this is it, and the person says it's not resolved, it's not resolved. In that case, it becomes a formal complaint. Or a client can opt to go a formal complaint route. What that means is there's a full investigation and a determination whether or not someone's human rights were violated, and then also an action plan is presented to them. Excuse me. And in that case, um, there are 10 business days from the start of the complaint for which the executive director needs to um, offer um, a determination as well as an action plan um, as appropriate. Let's go ahead and go through these. Um, I think there's not too many, and um, then we'll, we'll take a, a breather. So um, obviously people have a right to nutritional, well-balanced meals. Must be appetizing. That obviously if you have someone who's on a um, semi-soft diet, that if everybody else is having you know, um, meat and potatoes and let's say a vegetable, you don't put everything in a blender for them and say, here you are. You know, that, that obviously um, they, they need to be appetizing. And actually, if that would actually look like a very appetizing meal um, to, to have. So um, these aren't surprising. Communicate in confidence. Receive treatment in a humane, safe, and clean setting. Keep and use personal belongings. Make local telephone calls with reasonable administrative constraints. So what that might mean is that um, there's a policy that between the hours of, let's say, 10 and 8 or 10 and 6, that you can't make calls out in a common area that's going to disturb somebody else. That we may have those. But what we can't say is, 
you can only make calls if you know staff say you can or you've got good behavior today or something like that. People have the right to receive or refuse visitors. So what happens if um, you somebody comes to the house and they say, I'm um, client X's um, aunt, I want to see the client, and you go to the client and the client says, I don't want to see that person. Do they have a right to say that? Sure, sure they do. Um, and we can't limit who somebody sees unless this process happens. That licensed professional determines a visit will result in demonstrable harm to the individual. We have to notify the human rights advocate and review monthly. So um, let's say we have someone that um, lives in a residential facility and they have visitors over and the this has actually happened and the visitors threaten staff and other clients bodily harm. How do you handle that one? Bingo. Exactly. That, that this is not talking about you've got a situation where someone's threatening somebody that we say, oh, we can't have them leave because of this. This is talking in that situation, we would then probably go through this process that, you know, to, to say this would um, not somebody have there. But even in that situation, we wouldn't have the right to tell the client, you can't ever see that person. This is about a limit to the facilities that, our facilities to limit the right for someone to, to, um, to have a visitor. Here's the religious thing, that people have a right to practice um, the religion or, as Michelle pointed out, or not practice the religion. That we're not going to, um, staff can't place their beliefs on people. But there are two exemptions. And one, if the practice presents a danger of bodily injury to the individual or other individuals. What's an example of that? killing animals or people that maybe say, hey, we're going to have to handle poisonous snakes and it's my religion. I'm going to bring all the snakes in this group home. Nobody worry. It's, I have a right to bring these in. In that case, if we're limiting them, we're not limiting and saying you can or can't have a certain belief system. We're saying that particular practice related to that we're going to limit because of safety to yourself or to the other people that you're, you're serving. And then the second exception is um, in accordance with other general program rules. An example that I give is let's say a person says, I want to practice this uh, religion, but the only place that there's a service is in Charlottesville. So staff, I need you to drive me there two times a week. Do we have to agree to that? What if the person says, but you're violating my right to practice a religion? What do we say? Right, exactly. That, and, and maybe the person can find some other way. They can take a, but that's exactly right. That we're not limiting you can't have that belief system, but we're saying 
similar to we wouldn't if somebody said, Charlottesville has the best mall in town, will you drive me there two times a week? We would say, that's not a service that we provide either. So it's not about the religion. In both of these exceptions, it's not about the actual, actual belief system. It's about practices that um, are, could be limited. Um, have paper, pencil, and stamps provided free of charge. Um, receive assistance reading and writing mail and receiving mail. There's one um, exception here that isn't so applicable in our group homes, but if there's a suspicion that something's coming through the mail that's contraband for lack of um, better word, that staff can open it without reading the letter, shake it out. Not so applicable in our environment probably applicable into a, a unit that's a, a lockdown unit or that people, you know, a secure unit. Here, people come and go. We're not a lockdown facility that people have the right to move about the community so that this is less a, applicable. But if there would need to be, um, we need to institute that, that we would not be able to read the mail, but just to make sure it's, um, and in all of these cases, um, there may be times for restrictions or where we may um, act in a way that might seem to limit a person when there are safety concerns. So for example, we typically don't go and search people's bedrooms every day. When they leave, we don't say, okay, great, we're gonna just go in everybody's personal belongings. But in um, rare cases where there have been reasons that staff have brought forward, we're typically going to go to our human rights advocate and say, this is the, 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 um, the concern, this is how we'd like to address it. Um, and the ideal situation is you ask the client for consent. Can we look in your room? Can you look with us, right? Can, can, we, can we do this together? Um, and that we're going to try that approach as, instead of just automatically going in and, and doing a search. But, um, limiting, um, trying to involve the client in decisions like that is always going to be best. But in um, situations where safety is in, involved, that there may indeed be a reason for a restriction and we may indeed have to get that approved by our human rights advocate. Let's just take a seven minute break um, and we'll come back. Any questions? Ooh, can I have your, if you have not provided these to me, can I have? Thank you.
guys get done your moot yesterday, your moot training? You survived moot. I, I, I know. I know, I know. I, yep. And are all of you all here for a year or not? Or some of you here just for like nine months? Full year, everybody's okay. 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 So closer to a year than nine months, but okay. Those are your copies, I'm sorry, that I've. I've Yes, so if you would just look through and each of those, each of you should have one of each. Thank you for asking. I didn't uh, explain that. Coming around are your copies of what you signed yesterday and today. So if you would just look through the stack and each of you should have uh, one copy of each document. So, all right, I'm going to go ahead and... Um, start. So some of the individuals that we serve when they come into services, they already have somebody that's been appointed authorized representative. And I know we touched on that yesterday, that there could be a variety of um, uh, legal arrangements surrounding someone's um, guardianship or an authorized representative. You could have a, a power of attorney for certain decisions. So people, when they come into services, there may already be that um, type of arrangement. But, and if there is, we're going to obviously adhere to that and even know about it and document it. But um, if we suspect that the person lacks capacity, what do we need to do? And like I said, you may already have substitute decision makers or an authorized representative in place. Um, if there is not, the human rights regulations, however, have a process of appointing somebody who can assist the client in um, making um, decisions and helping the person advocate for themselves, etc. And I'm going to shut the door. In this case where the director, and that would be the executive director of this agency, appoint somebody who's an authorized representative, that is talking about for the services that we provide. So if Mr. Wilson, our executive director, appoints someone as an authorized representative, that doesn't mean that 
the person's authorized representative a client go to Florida and and say, oh, well, Mr. Wilson from Loudoun County appointed me as the authorized representative. This is not a legal um, guardianship or something, but it's an appointment of somebody that can help a client make decisions. Um, so the director can uh, appoint, and obviously if there's um, somebody that's involved with um, someone's life, um, spouse, children, parents, in some cases there may not be a family member who's involved, and um, after a capacity is assessed, that looking for someone else to be an authorized representative, and the individual, meaning the client, can't have an objective, and in that case, the next friend, as that individual would be termed, has to go before the LHRC, that they want to oversee um, that process, could an employee ever be an authorized representative of a client? What's the one situation where they could? Family member, that you may have somebody that has a family member. Now certainly our staff aren't going, shouldn't be, we wouldn't have a staff in providing services to a client, but you could have a situation, in fact, do, where you may have a employee who has a, a child in receiving services and they're actually the, the guardian of that person, but they're not actually gonna be providing the services. But in all other um, situations, staff are not allowed to be authorized representatives of the people that we serve. So I'm gonna switch gears a little bit now. Any questions thus far? So I'm now going to talk about abuse, neglect, and exploitation. And there are two different um, tracks that I'm going to address. One is Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Services and the regulations that talk about our duty as an agency, MHSAD's duty, if there's um, an allegation of abuse, neglect, or exploitation, we have to do certain things. Then we also have duties under the um, other regulations that we have to report potential abuse, neglect, or exploitation to adult protective services and child protective services. And you signed something when you came in about being a mandated reporter. And that was a singular duty that each of you and I have if we believe that there's been abuse, neglect, or exploitation. So that means that if you walk out of here on your way out, you see me punch a client, and I say, oh, you know what? I'm the human rights trainer. You saw things wrong. Do you still have a duty to report that? If you suspect there's been abuse, neglect by your supervisor, do you have a duty? Yes, the duty is that you as an individual have a duty, and hopefully you, you'd never find yourself in that situation, um, and I don't plan to punch anybody on the way out, just for, um, but keep an eye on me. But in any case, that it really is a duty, and that if you believe that, then someone else can't talk you out of that. So that if someone calls me and says, Heidi, here's the situation. It was, you know, I believe it was potential abuse, neglect, or exploitation. What do I do? 
well, if you believe it was potential abuse, neglect, or exploitation, you need to make the, the call. You need to call APS or CPS. If you're trying to work through a situation, I'd be, you know, we're happy to talk with you, but truly if you believe it rises to the level, then you need to report that. So let's look here at our, um, some of these definitions. Um, abuse, act or failure to act by an employee, and then we have neglect. The investigations that we do, most of those fall into this category, neglect. Staff didn't intentionally abuse, abuse somebody, but the failure typically to do something, often um, times in the case of a medication administration. We didn't administer medication properly either we for what um, the person um, didn't get the right medications, et cetera, that it was a failure to provide um, services. What would be um, an example here of abuse? Well, no, or no, not necessarily medication. It could be, but in general, um, in general, what's an example of potential abuse? Having a relationship, we could say that would be abuse. Physical hitting somebody, right? Um, exactly, causing um, psychological harm. And if you think of the situation with the punch buggy, where the, 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 the staff person was doing, that was actually, right? And even though, if, if we didn't do anything about it, do you think it could rise to the level of abuse? Yeah, sure, and, and, and though you had the employee who really um, was there, and uh, another sad thing, as, as we sat in the interview talking to the person, he demonstrated how he did punch buggy with one of my staff members, and said, please don't do that again. But anyway, this person really didn't quite, didn't have maybe as good as boundaries as we would um, want someone to have. But, um, so abuse, neglect, Besides, yes. So I think what you're you're asking is, hey, what about the fact that in this case that employee didn't didn't know? And that's what I'm saying. If we didn't do anything about that, then I think we would we would then be a potential not just neglect but actually abuse. Uh, I understand intent. On the other hand, if we look here, cause or might cause physical or psychological harm or injury to an individual that it doesn't. You could have even if there's not the intent could have abuse, certainly. Your question was, were we the first person that the client had reported this incident to? Yeah. 
I am sorry to say it's been a number of years ago, and I'm not sure what, um, what happened. I will tell you this, um, that with human rights investigations, that, and we'll think into this a little bit more, but the executive director has to make a finding, and then may indeed um, direct that other things happen, such as there may be a human resources investigation, that the human rights investigations that we do are not the same as a human rights I mean, it's a human resources inquiry, that that may be a different track, and indeed, you would think probably that there was some human resources involved um, in that situation. I cannot remember um, if this person, I believe, if I remember right, the client actually did talk to the staff person and say, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't want that, and I think the staff person thought like, oh, they were joking, that the staff person really didn't take this person seriously in what they were saying, if I'm remembering correctly, and I think I was. Did I answer your question? You mean, in that case, for the, is your concern, hey, the employee maybe just getting caught off guard, you mean? Okay, okay. I hear what you're saying. Um, exactly, right, right. And I think actually in this case, the resolution, the client didn't want to work with the, didn't want to be around that person anymore. So, um, and with intent had a, a similar situation where a staff person, um, had found a way to lose weight, and they were so excited, and they wanted to tell everybody. Um, and including this one client, and kept trying to encourage this client, well, the client didn't take it as helping them. Instead, they saw it as, ah, they're, they're you know, attacking me. They're, they're um, violating my rights. I don't want to do this. And when you talk to the staff person, the staff person was, Surprise, wow, you know, I've got this great, trying to encourage them. And so I think sometimes it is about um, presentation, but also being sensitive to the people that we serve and that how we may obviously interact with others in our life in a joking manner, et cetera, obviously isn't going to be the same that we're going to interact in people here. Hopefully in situations that our employees are aware of other people, of our clients' requests, and, and know that if a client says, I don't want to you know, do that anymore, you don't, ah, oh, you're just joking about it, but that they would be serious and probably not engage in that in, in the first place. So what is an example besides um, a medication error of neglect? So failing to give care, exactly. Now if it was intentional, it could be abuse, but if we, you know, somehow we forgot to do it, et cetera, I, I agree that um, care. I think that's right. So um, to repeat back for, for the camera is 
the um, provision of services that's not fair or consistent with treatment plans or that's um, favoring one person over the other. Is that right? Okay. So, yes. I guess you could, depending on what our obligation, what our agency's obligation would, would be. Um, right, that if, some, if um, there was self-neglect on the client's behalf in and of itself, I think, wouldn't mean we were neglectful unless we had an obligation to do something. And this is where sometimes you get into the gray area in terms of people, especially that we serve in residential settings, that we have an obligation to serve them, et cetera, but that if someone doesn't want that care, where does it, it balance out? Exploitation, misuse or misappropriation of owned assets, goods, or property. What's an example of that? Money, so taking a client's money, having um, a client, using client's fund to pay for staff's dinner, um, um, using or stealing a client's um, property. We um, here do not allow that if you're purchasing items for a client that you can't mingle your items with their items, that it needs to be very clear. You need to have a receipt and that there's a clear process and we have a, a money management policy that's very um, straightforward about how what's responsibility surrounding money so that we um, have control so that we um, don't end up um, with exploitation or potential exploitation. The other thing that's not here is also using your position of power to try to get something from a person, um, whether that would be um, forcing them to do something. Oh, I'm the thing you need to go and clean my car. That, that would be a type of exploitation. And um, the regulations um, group abuse, neglect, and exploitation under one category of abuse. And that's why when I've been talking about these, I kind of put them all together and string them together, abuse, neglect, exploitation. And the regulations do that as one big category. Here's abuse, and then within those, there are these three different categories. So we talked a little bit about each of us being a mandated reporter. And of injuries known through his or her professional capacity. So if I go to um, Target um, on my lunch hour and I see one of our staff people abusing, potentially, um, abusing um, one of our clients that I know is being served, do I have an obligation to report that? Even though I'm on my lunch hour, do I have an obligation? Yes, why? Because I know them. And even if I'm out on the weekend and I see something happening, then I still, because I know them through my professional um, capacity. So in that situation, we um, need to report that to supervisor and APS and CPS. So this as a mandated report it's about the people that we're serving, regardless of whether the potential abuse is by a staff member, a family member, someone that we don't even know who the person is. But if we see a person 
it's known to us in our professional capacity that we serve here, we have a duty to report. I point that out because our duty under investigations is a different duty. So for APS, CPS, um, APS, people that are 18 to 60 who are incapacitated, and we'll talk about that in a minute, or over 60. And there you don't have to have the incapacity question. So um, I know my father went to the, to the doctor, and my dad is, is over 60, um, well over 60 now. And, and the doctor kept asking him questions, you know, hey, what's, what are those marks on your arms? And I think um, it finally became clear to my father that the doctor needed to question because my dad had suspicious marks on his arm. Maybe he was being abused. Finally, my dad said, you know, he lets the dog bite, bite his arms, which I wish he wouldn't do. But obviously, the doctor was making an inquiry because he was a mandated reporter to, you know, hey, is there potential abuse or neglect going um, on here? So people that are 18 through 60, an incapacitated adult, would you read this definition and then I'm going to ask you if you think that everybody that we serve meets this definition. What do you all think? Does everybody that we serve meet this definition? Not necessarily right. That it, that it isn't just by virtue of us serving them that they're incapacitated, therefore they're um, going to meet the APS classification. Probably many, most of our developmental services clients are going to meet that incapacity question. The good news for us is we don't make that determination whether or not someone has the, uh, is incapacitated for this definition. This is different than the capacity that the, um, for authorized representative. This is whether or not APS is basically going to look at the case. Because APS isn't going to take a case for which someone isn't covered, and if you're between 18 and 60, and you don't meet this standard, they're not going to take your case. Our rule, if it's a client, if it falls into a situation you suspect abuse, neglect, or exploitation, we make the call. APS may indeed, when we give facts and descriptions of the person and their capabilities, they may decide that the person actually doesn't meet this definition and they're not going to take it. But we as an agency have made the decision that we're going to, to make a call so that our staff don't have to make that determination in terms of this, because this is a very broad definition. This is not the same as um, a legal standard or whatnot. And then children, 17 and under, um, and those go, those go to uh, Child Protective Services. Um, the number to call is there, and there may also be other entities that need to be called, the police etc. may need to be called. So if you call um, Adult Protective Services or Child Protective Services, 
um, here is the um, information and the Adult Protective Services and Child Protective Services inquiry is different than our agencies. It's about is there a person that, that um, falls within the, the class of people and if so, are they in need of protection? So if there was um, a potential abuse, let's say, but the situation is resolved and the person that was the alleged abuser moved out of state, then APS isn't gonna take the case because the person is no longer in jeopardy, the, the, the client. But that's gonna be different than our organization if we um, suspect that there's a potential abuse and let's say there's an allegation that a staff person hit a client. Well, we're not gonna say, well, that happened last night and the staff person went home today, so we're not gonna look into it, right? That, that we have a duty, even if that staff person actually was leaving our employment, we would still have a duty to, to investigate that. Now, one of the things that's probably going to come up for those of you that are in the clinical setting, by virtue of what you do and are talking with people, you're going to hear of historical abuse, right? And that um, the, the rule that we use there is one, you always have your supervisor to, to talk to or, or other colleagues to go to of when does it need to be reported to Adult Protective Services. Um, what we use is if it's a matter of current concern, then it needs to be reported. So for example, if you have a situation where somebody says, I was um, abused by my uncle, but my uncle moved out of the state five years ago, I've had no contact with him, then that wouldn't be of a current concern. But if the person said, I've had no contact with him, but last night he called me up and said he's coming over to finish you know, to, to, to finish the job or whatever tonight, then that would obviously be a current concern and would need to be protected. And when we um, call APS and CPS, like I said, it's regarding the client, whether or not an, an employee, another person. If we as an agency in that situation hear of someone, a client's uncle who's abusing them, you're gonna call APS and probably you're gonna help them process that clinically and you know, may help them find other services, but we as an agency don't have any right unless the uncle happens to work for us to go do an investigation, right? That that would be part of what APS and CPS um, would, would need to um, do. Oh, sorry, so we as an agency, however, have to look into allegations, I'll get you one second, abuse, neglect, or exploitation by our employees, volunteers, and that we have an obligation to look into. Go ahead and ask your question, then I'll, I'll finish up with this slide. So, 
I think you're saying in the situation where an employee is filling out intake forms or some assessment forms and they become emotional and, and seem bothered by, by the question but then don't want to talk about it, how do you handle that? Is that what you're asking? Um, in that case, I wouldn't necessarily say, well, we don't have a duty to report it because we don't know the specifics. I would once again get your, I would involve your supervisor in that situation and potentially another um, colleague to decide um, how you need to proceed. Because our rule is going to, and this is easy for me to say here, standing up here, it's if you suspect abuse, neglect, or exploitation, you need to report. In that situation, what do you report? Well, you can't give any information in terms of who is the alleged perpetrator, which APS is going to need, right? On the other hand, you feel like, well, you just can't say, oh, I'm going to move on, right? So I think that that's probably something that I would say you would work with your supervisor on that to decide, okay, how are we going to work with the person? For APS and CPS, they actually need an identified person to, to make a decision whether or not someone needs protection. Did that answer your question? I think it would be a little different than, I think we would try to, not necessarily from the APS, CPS, but in terms of serving that person of, hey, what's going on and trying to. Okay, right. And, um, you know, um, I, would, I would refer you back to your, your, your the person's treatment team or their supervisor in those situations, but I would definitely do some kind of follow-up with someone okay. with that. Um, okay, so with um, the investigations that our agency does, um, it may be a case where if there's an allegation um, against one of our employees, that the director may need to take immediate action. So if there's an allegation that a staff person, let's say, hit somebody, then the director um, may decide to put that person, you know, at work in an office and not working with clients through the duration of the investigation, which doesn't mean it's founded or the person did it, but it's a protection um, of the client in that situation. Or if there's been, let's say, a, a serious medication error by a staff member, it may be that the person isn't allowed to administer medications until they go through a training. Um, so with the investigation, that's something that the compliance team, the quality assurance branch, has a responsibility for going out and basically um, gathering information, looking at documents, interviewing people, and then writing a report and providing that to the executive director who makes the determination of whether or not there was founded abuse, neglect, or exploitation. And I've talked um, several times about our state human rights advocate, an employee of um, the state of Virginia, and his role, his name is Mark Seymour, and you'll see his name on our posters. His role is, um, he has se several duties. One is to assist individuals that the people that we serve may call him directly. They have a complaint and get in touch with us and we'll try to resolve that need with the client, um, promote and monitor provider compliance that he can do follow-up, he can come in at any time announced or unannounced to um, ask, and he's also a resource for us um, as a provider in terms of 
the human rights regulations and how we proceed. The um, other group that I've talked about at least once or twice is the Local Human Rights Committee. And that is, um, here we have the Loudoun Local Human Rights Committee, a group of volunteers that are appointed by the State Human Rights Committee that basically are another oversight for the people that we serve. That if people believe that their human rights are being violated and they've taken it to us, we've done an investigation, but they're um, not satisfied with the result, it's another area, another avenue that the person can pursue is a hearing before the LHRC. Then the last, um, the other group there is the State Human Rights Committee that they are another group, and they actually, if there's a, a variance to the regulations, they oversee that, they appoint the Local Human Rights Committee and provide direction for the other committees. And that is the end of the presentation. Um, any questions? Sure. What we do as our standard is that we do report that, that we don't make that decision about the inc whether or not they're incapacitated, that we go ahead and call that because we would rather have air on calling if APS doesn't, an APS not taking the complaint than not reporting something that we should have reported. So now it may be in that situation you've called APS and they say, they're not, you know, incapacitated. What I think we would probably want to do, and you'd want to work with your supervisor, is say to APS, should I continue to phone in these types of complaints? Because in this case, our agency, we have no authority at, to go in and, you know, say to the spouse, knock it out, we're here doing an investigation. We just, we don't have that authority. So I think that I would work with my supervisor and ask APS the question, um, should I continue to call even though you've said no, and then you're gonna document that. Because our obligation is, hey, we've gotta make that call, and obviously it's um, not meant to be, um, it's not just about, oh, a checkbox, but it's about protection of rights, and if you believe, hey, they're not gonna take it, and et cetera, I would ask that. The other thing is APS, you can call and ask questions and not submit a a complaint so that you know we can somebody can call and say hey and if I have this situation is this something I need to report etc and that they are more than um, agreeable and we actually have a good working relationship with APS and, and CPS which is good because sometimes we're both investigating um, situations That's a very good question. Um, your, your obligation is as a mandated reporter because you're employed with us that you have an obligation to report. Now, um, we also say, okay, well, we're gonna, you're gonna need to talk to your supervisor. Um, if there was some reason for which it needed to be anonymous, I think you would want to try to involve somebody in that decision because typically we then 
document that we followed, do you know what I mean? That we documented that we made that call to APS in our notes. And if there's some break from that for let's say a very good reason, I can't think of one, but let's say that there really was a, a special situation, I think that you would want to have some communication with someone that's a manager level within our organization, even if it wasn't your supervisor, to get guidance before you wouldn't document that because of our obligation also as an agency. Does that make sense? Are there questions? Okay, 